ready when you are. Okay, great. So welcome everybody uh, to the Longevity Biotech Show. Uh, here is where we interview scientists, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders advancing the state of the art in uh, longevity biotechnology and how it's going to impact us and the world in the decades directly ahead. Today we have uh, Jean M. Haber, hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly, a uh, very interesting uh, professor and researcher at the Albert Einstein um, College of Medicine in New York, if I'm not mistaken. Um, uh, we have, I guess, till scheduled till five, but uh, Jean said that uh, we might be able to go a little bit past that. So um, I guess what we'll do this time is we'll have a few minutes of intro, uh, maybe 15 minutes of prepared questions from each of uh, Nathan and myself, and then um, maybe 15 minutes of audience Q&A. And then if, if Jean has time, we can we can go past that, past our, <clears throat> excuse me, um, scheduled uh, cutoff time at five. So with that, uh, how should we do this? Uh, Nathan, you want to go first or I'll just do a quick intro here? Yeah, let's just do quick introductions. I'll introduce myself. So I'm Nathan. I'm uh, the uh, founder of longevitymarketcap.com and uh, the writer of the longevitymarketcap.com uh, newsletter. It's basically a once a week sort of roundup of all the developments in the longevity industry. And uh, I'm also the founder of longevitylist.com. And that's uh, a place where you can find jobs, uh, companies, and investors in the longevity space. Uh, Jean, you want to give a quick uh, intro? I mean, we're going to be talking about you the whole hour. So uh, wh whatever you usually do as an intro here. Oh, sure. <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, as you mentioned, uh, I'm in New York at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, um, and the research we do is uh, cell replacement aimed at repairing and rejuvenating the brain. In fact, what we're really trying to do is reverse uh, age-related damage in the brain, ultimately, um, and so I'll tell you more about that uh, during the conversation, I guess. Uh, great. And I'm Robert. I'm an aging biology researcher currently with uh, the Cohen Lab in, at the University of Sherbrooke, a short distance outside of Quebec in Canada, outside of Montreal in Quebec, Canada. Uh, I have about 10 years of professional experience as a uh, bioinformatics and research software engineer in academia and industry. So, uh, Nathan, you want to start with uh, the questions here or... Uh, because okay, you, you actually invited Jean to the uh, show here, so I, and, and you read his book first. So yeah. um, maybe it'd be better if you started. Yeah, totally. I'll take it over from here. Um, yeah, so it's a great pleasure and honor to have uh, Jean Habert here. Uh, I read his book uh, a couple months back, and it was just like a total eye-opener and very interesting, uh, some really big ideas that um, I'm really excited to dig deeper into. So maybe, John, you can just start off by telling us a bit about your backstory. Um, so where does the, your longevity story begin? It, it's a long, 
long longevity story, I guess. <laughs> I've been interested in this since I was a little kid and, and you know, realized that we, we fall apart as we get old. And I thought, well, maybe we, there's something we can do about this. And that sort of guided my interest um, throughout my, my schooling and my career. Um, uh, so initially, I was interested in in genetics, because at the time, you know, that's, that's sort of the the code of life. And I thought, if there's anything we can do, it's from a genetic perspective. So I got my PhD in genetics, um, and then realized, you know, genetics is a really useful tool. Um, but in terms of directly addressing aging, um, regenerative medicine uh, showed a lot more potential. And so I've sort of been focused more on that. And, and um, you know, regenerative medicine is a huge field where uh, you, you have to specialize uh, for different parts of the body. So I thought, well, what, what's the most important part of the body? Um, and, and that's the part of the brain that we use for our conscious thinking and everything, I thought. And I guess some people would agree. Um, and, and so I focused on that and, and how can we reverse the damage that occurs with time in this part of the brain? And so that's what we're actively working on now. Yeah, that's, that's super interesting uh, about the brain. And I think that's really the, the main focus uh, about uh, replacement strategies. Because when I first heard about your book, uh, you know, I saw the title, Replacing Aging, and I was like, oh, okay, I know what this is going to be about, you know, organ transplants, you know, xenotransplantation, uh, lab-grown organs and that kind of stuff. And I was thinking to myself, oh, but, you know, this will never, you know, solve the problem about the brain. You can't just replace the brain, right? So, but then when I actually opened up your book and started reading it, I was like, oh, this guy's actually trying to replace the brain too. That's crazy. <laughs> but uh, maybe you can just tell us a little bit about that strategy, right? Like um, there's replacement of the body, right? Uh, and there's various uh, approaches to going about that. But uh the brain is just like one of those organs that most people think can't be replaced. But uh, you have an interesting approach to doing this. Maybe you can explain. Yeah, yeah. And thanks, you know, for your questions and, and having me here, too, as well, to have the opportunity to tell you a little bit more about this. Um, so, yeah, the book is sort of divided into three parts. One of them is, like you say, uh, how we can actually... Um, progressively replace the brain, which is somewhat counterintuitive, but I'll, I'll say a little bit more about that to explain why it's possible uh, in theory and in practice. Um, the other two parts of the book, I don't know, maybe we'll touch upon them a little later, but it's sort of the, um, you know, some of the uh, limitations of, of the other approaches and, and why I think they're more focused on the effects of aging rather than the, the core, um, the, the essence of what aging really is. Um, and then, you know, I talk about other parts of the body as well, but coming back to the brain, uh, the reason why it makes sense to think about replacing the brain progressively over time is, is that's sort of the nature of the brain to start with. It's very plastic. And we've known this for a long time. In, in the neurosciences where, uh, you know, experiments have been conducted with uh, model animal um, systems showing that uh, parts of 
in particular the neocortex, which is what, again, what we use for our, our most advanced cognitive functions, can be repurposed over time uh, for different uses, depending on whether we no longer use a, the needed the previous function it was used for, or uh, whether we need it more for a new function. So the, the neocortex is very plastic and the substrate uh, for, for who we are in terms of our memories, our thought patterns, uh, is always is continuously changing over time and, and can actually change a lot faster than it normally does in our daily lives. And one of my favorite examples, there, there are multiple, but um, is the example in humans of slow-growing benign gliomas that occur in the language center. And these gliomas over the course of five or eight years can completely eat away at the language center so that the original language center is gone. And eventually, you know, the person with this tumor gets a bad enough headache or, you know, a seizure that they go to the hospital and, and you know, they're told, oh, bad news, you have a brain tumor. Good news, it's benign and we can take it out. So they take it out with a little surrounding tissue for good measure, which is what they always do to try and avoid uh, recurrence. And the patients can still speak normally, even though you, know, you can clearly see on an MRI that they have a big hole where the language center should be. And so when they look at where the language center has moved to, it's moved to a new part of the neocortex over time. Um, and this is very different for example, than what happens in a stroke. So they actually, in their study, do a side-by-side -side comparison with same-aged individuals with the same amount of damage to the language center, but due to a stroke, which is a catastrophic event where individuals don't recover uh, any language, maybe a few words, but it's very minimal. Um, so these are very different uh, outcomes to essentially the same amount of damage. And what's different is the time that it took for the damage to occur. In one case, stroke, catastrophic event, no time for plasticity, the brain to move the function to a new substrate. Whereas with a slow-growing benign glioma, there was five to eight years for language to move to a new part of the, of the neocortex. And, and this level of plasticity where a function as you know, complicated and as dear to us as language uh, can move to a new substrate tells us in principle that the, the brain can be replaced progressively over time, right? And, and so uh, since the book actually, you know, we've elaborated strategies uh, that can be implemented that we can test at least to show that, that this can actually be done. Um, but the other reason why uh, in practice, not just in principle, but in practice, we think that the brain uh, can be replaced is uh, somewhat more recent evidence putting in where lots of labs are, are doing transplants of immature neocortical precursor cells um, and other areas of the brain as well. And showing that these immature precursors behave like they do uh, in a developing individual, uh, as opposed to a, uh, in, you know, an old adult individual, meaning that they project, they differentiate normally, they project to their normal targets, and they become functionally integrated in existing circuits. Um, 
So those two things together uh, tell us that it should be possible to, using replacements, uh, reverse brain aging by progressively uh, replacing the different parts. Um, there's a lot of things that need to be worked out to make that happen. This is a very big project. I don't mean to make it sound like it's simple. It's very complicated. There are a lot of cell types to consider. Um, there, there are a lot of things that need to empirically be tested uh, to make sure that, that they work. But there's no biological reason why uh, we can't reverse brain aging. Uh, the reasons right now are just technical. Uh, so I think we'll be able to overcome them. Yeah, I, I really like that point that, that really this approach is fundamentally sound. It's really, a, as you said, a technical problem. It's like an engineering problem. Yeah. Whereas if you try to reverse, you know, aging in the brain with, uh, with other means, maybe like with a drug or something like that, maybe you would have to understand the entire system before you could even begin to think about, okay, we'll try, you know, this drug or this combination to try and reverse aging. And um, yeah, so I just really love your, your approach because of, of its fundamental soundness. Um, but moving on to just uh, your idea. So we have uh, this hypothesis um, that we can replace aging, or sorry, uh, reverse aging in the, in the brain with replacement. What, what does the roadmap look like? Like what sort of technical details are you? Are you... Well, so again, if we just uh, focus on the neocortex to start with, because it's sort of the biggest part of the brain, you know, it's the, the outer part of the brain that's all folded, that when you think of a human brain, that's, that's the image you have in your head, right? So it's really uh, the biggest and most important part of the brain. So if we focus on that to start with, um, but eventually not exclusively because the other parts are also important and, and will need to be replaced. Uh, the neocortex is composed of multiple cell types. Um, for the most part, they're very well uh, defined. Um, the cytoarchitecture and the arrangement of those cell types is also uh, well known. So one of the first big steps is to be able to reassemble those cells in sort of this um, young immature tissue where the ratio of cell types is what it's supposed to be, the relative maturity state of the different cell types uh, mimics what they are during normal development because we want these, this tissue to mature as normally as possible. And the um, sort of topographical arrangement of these precursors also matches what it should be uh, during development, again, just to uh, foster normal development. Um, so, you know, th that's one of the big uh, technical questions that we're starting to tackle. But again, uh, this is, there's, you know, many moving parts that have to come together to make this work. Um, another one I think is really important is just to show proof of concept that this approach works. Uh, and that's something we're also uh, developing a, an assay for. Um, so basically recovering a lost function with a grafted tissue. And the tools are available now where we can specifically silence uh, transiently the neurons in our graft without affecting anything else. And if we can, sh if we can do that, then we can show that the behavior that we think this graft is now um, allow, you know, um, 
underlying, uh, we can transiently silence the neurons and show that that behavior can no longer occur and then reactivate that graft and show that the behavior comes back, then we've pretty much proven the concept that we can do it. So I think that's a very important experiment. So we're working really hard on that as well to get that to work. Right, so these experiments will be done in, in mice first, I'm guessing, right? Yeah, most, yeah, we start with mice and then, you know, move from there. <laughs> okay, we can great. go directly from mice to humans. Uh, we might have to do a larger uh, uh, mammal, um, but yeah, that's the idea. Okay, cool. And are you looking for uh, collaborators? Um, are you hiring people to help you on this uh, project or looking for funding? Maybe uh, if you want to speak to that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's a, a little bit, I mean, we're, we can hire a couple of people now, but it's really funding first, then people. So yeah, I, I've been uh, actively seeking um, funding uh, more and more so from, uh, you know, the, the private sector. Uh, this is a little too risky for NIH funding, for example. They tend to be very conservative in the projects that they, they like to fund. It's also a very big project, like I said, and so it does require more funding than, than most of the NIH funding mechanisms would allow. Uh, so that's why we, you know, I've been uh, particularly um, looking at alternative uh, funding mechanisms through the private industry. And you know, once that comes in, then yeah, we, we already have a, a team of um, scientists, you know, th these are heads of labs who have agreed to participate in this project um, by, by participating in the, the hiring of, of the specialists that we need and if necessary, their training and, and overseeing the different aspects uh, of this project to make it work. And it's like, there's a team of 15 of us. So really, uh, first step is funding. Second step is then um, expanding these these teams to be more functional. Great. Yeah. So if there's anybody in the audience or any listeners out there um, who have uh, access to funding and are very interested in uh, Jean Hebert's uh, program to you know, reverse brain aging, um, yeah, you can go contact him. I think... Uh, just uh, by email or, or his website at uh, Albert Einstein College of Medicine, uh, yep. unless you have another. Yeah, okay, cool. So um, let's turn it over to Robert now. I know he has a bunch of questions. So uh, Robert, do you want to take over? Yeah, thanks, Nathan. So uh, Jean, very, very interesting. Um, so I confess that I, uh, first of all, thank you, Nathan, for inviting Jean and discovering his uh, book and work and all that kind of stuff. I, I wasn't aware of it really until uh, you brought him up. So uh, thanks for that. Um, so Jean, I confess that that uh, I know we've been uh, emailing a little bit before uh, the call here, but um, I actually just finished reading your book a little over an hour ago. <laughs> I caught up very early today and uh, and I went through the the whole thing. And it's, uh, if I may say, it is one of the most thought-provoking and uh, in some ways imaginative books that I've read since Eric Drexler's Engine of, of Creation, which in, in my view, that book is better than science fiction or better than a lot of science fiction. So uh, kudos to uh, 
you know, having the courage to write such a book and, uh, and discuss your ideas and all that. Uh, I have way too many questions for uh, the few minutes that we have in the call here. And we, we do want to try to open this up to the audience. Uh, we, we have a number of people here that might be uh, very interesting to add to the conversation. Uh, like I said, we have Colin Ewald from uh, the ETH, who we had on, uh, uh, was it like a week or two ago? I'm losing track of time here. Um, I do want to, uh, I did want to ask, uh, uh, I'm looking through my notes here. I took extensive notes on your book. So by the way, I, I'm just going to say again to everyone listening, this is an exceptionally good book. Uh, it's, it's probably one of the best books discussing um, the prospects of uh, reversing or replacing aging. Uh, in some ways, it's even better than, than the book that Aubrey wrote because it's, it doesn't get quite as uh, technical uh, for lay audiences. And it, it really just focuses on the, the main points. Um, so... <clears throat> I, I got to limit my questions and I, I didn't have too much time to sort through everything, but uh, all right, let me, let me start with uh, one major point that I think may be worth expanding the conversation to even perhaps another call, which is you do, like, as you said earlier, you spent uh, the early parts of the book, uh, one or two sections discussing um, how approaches to dealing with age related damage that are not involving replacement of the components of the whole organs are not likely not likely to work and you mention uh in particular at one point how there are people in the field of uh, aging biology and longevity therapeutics that are working on for example telomeres and lengthening telomeres or mitochondria and reactivating or, or restoring their function um amongst other things that you mentioned in the book can you elaborate a little bit on uh, just for the people here that, that aren't so familiar with what you've said in the book, why you think that those approaches are not likely to be as effective as, as what you're uh, suggesting? Yeah, no, thanks. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question. Um, so I think there's a very big blind spot in the field of longevity research now. And it, it relates to the fact that I think people are ignoring what aging is at its core and instead are, are focusing on, you know, one or many of the effects of aging. I, I think the most useful definition and the most accurate definition of aging is the accumulation of macromolecular damage that occurs over time. Um, in all animals, not all, there's a few exceptions, but, you know, most animals uh, and in all our tissues, and this is important, uh, and we've known about this damage accumulation for decades from biochemists, but somehow um, it, it's really largely ignored by the field. Um, if, for example, uh, you know, there are lots of proteins have been shown to accumulate damage over time and have uh, really bad effects on the function of cells. Um, but, but let me give you a couple of examples to try to make it more concrete. Uh, one is elastin. It's a protein that's found in uh, the walls of blood vessels. It's made uh, when we're developing, you know, uh, as, as uh, embryos, fetuses, and maybe uh, uh, still growing as children. Um, after that, it's not made anymore throughout life. 
and it accumulates damage. So it's, it's well documented. It's, it's actually a wonderful biomarker that, you know, is also completely ignored in this chase for biomarkers. But it accumulates damage over our lifetime to the point where when we hit 90 or 100, this elastin protein is really not uh, functioning well at all. It's not doing what it should. You know, it does not allow blood vessels to um, contract or expand at all. Uh, and so it, it, it and, and blood vessels are throughout our body, right? So any approach that doesn't take this kind of damage into consideration in, in, in trying to reverse it um, will likely meet a wall of, you know, for longevity, right? And this was actually proposed uh, by a couple of groups, again, uh, decades ago, that, that, that this accumulation of damage, uh, if, if, is, if not addressed, sets a limit to longevity, right? Because these proteins are not turned over. You can change the epigenetics of cells. It, it won't matter. They're not going to replace the elastin that's non-functional that's there. You can change the metabolism of cells. You're not going to uh, remove the damage to the elastin that's there. And I, I'm focusing on elastin, but it's true for a lot of collagens. Um, it's true for even uh, some intracellular proteins that uh, appear to be exceedingly stable. Um, there's components of the nuclear uh, core complex that uh, don't seem to turn over. Some components of the nuclear core do, but, but the scaffold proteins in the nuclear core complex don't seem to turn over, and they're known to accumulate damage over time. Um, so one might think, okay, well, you know, so a lot of these approaches that are very popular now don't address this damage. So so, but maybe there are other approaches other than replacement that might work, like reversing this damage or undoing at a molecular level this damage. But elastin uh, and these nuclear pore complex scaffolding proteins and long-lived collagens, uh, you know, are just some examples. But, but there are so many, I mean, pretty much all proteins accumulate damage with age. Uh, and one of the reasons is that some of these forms of damage are not uh, easily dealt with. So we have all sorts of proteases that normally turn over proteins. So you would think, oh, that's good. You can just get rid of damaged proteins and they turn over. Well, one, as I mentioned, some proteins don't turn over. Another thing is that um, uh, that that the damage that uh, these proteins incur inhibit the degradation by these proteases so that they, they just accumulate. So you get accumulation of, of damaged proteins, even ones that normally turn over more, uh, more quickly. Um, and then the forms of damage, I mean, there's, we hear about glycation, oxidation, so different forms of cross-linking. Uh, there's also uh, racemization where amino acids go from the L conformation to the D conformation, also a very good biomarker over time. It's very linear. Uh, there, but there's many others, uh, depurination, depyramidination, forms of aggregation that we hear about, deamidation. I mean, the list goes on. And these forms of damage um, occur differently in different species of proteins over time, right? So trying to imagine how you're going to undo this, and this is only protein. So this, 
type of damage also occurs to uh, lipids, our fats, uh, to carbohydrates in, that are you know ubiquitous in the body. Um, and of course, also we have different forms of damage to the DNA, which in itself, you know, is information content and uh, irreversible in that sense, because it's it's also ran sort of this stochastic damage that requires information content to be to be um, repaired. So when you start putting all this knowledge that we have about damage accumulation. And you leave that out of the equation when you're trying to address how you're going to uh, beat aging. Uh, I think we're, you know, we have a, we we have to consider using replacements as a means of addressing aging. So, if you replace a tissue, you replace all forms of damage in one shot, right? You you basically set the clock back to zero, and if you replace enough of the body in a short enough period of time, you will become young again, right? I don't think anybody could, anybody argues against that. Um, what people are not necessarily aware of is that uh, regenerative medicine has made tremendous strides over the last few decades uh, in replacing organs. In some cases, in patients with lab-grown organs, and um, it, but for all organs, they're all in preclinical trials, and, and you know progress is constantly being made. Not fast enough, in my opinion. More funding needed for that as well. Um, but but that's certainly coming along. And and you know as Nathan pointed out, it's it's you know when you do think about oh replacement would be great, but if you can't do it for the brain, what's the point? Uh, so the point I make in the book as well is that you can do it for the brain. Um, and so I think, I, I, I think we'll, it's a matter of time before we actually beat aging. But I think for many of the approaches that are favored now, they'll be met with, um, you know, disappointment or at least limitations into the benefits that they have. I think a lot of them acknowledge, uh, a lot of the researchers working on these points acknowledge the limitations and are now talking about healthy aging or, you know, uh, not getting the diseases of old age and yet still aging, right? So um, so I think that's a great thing as well. You know, if you limit the amount of disease you get when you grow old, that's great. So that, that, that all that research might have some benefits, but in terms of actually impacting the aging process itself or, or beating the aging process, I think we have to acknowledge that they, they will meet with uh, uh, limitations and, and maybe disappointments for those who think that these, approach, these approaches might extend human lifespan well beyond 100 years. Um, so thanks for the question. <laughs> well, thanks for the detailed answer there. Uh, uh, there's, if, if I can just ask you a very short, just give a very short answer to this, to, just, to what you just said there other people in the field, do they call you a pessimist for saying that, uh, you know, they might, uh, that these more conventional approaches are going to uh, lead to disappointments or something? Um, I've gotten uh, more, much more positive response uh, than negative in that sense. So, you know, because really what I'm saying is that we can do this. We can beat aging. I think it's inevitable. So I think, 
you know, and I, I don't know if that's optimism, but um, it's it's a positive uh, outlook, I think. Um, I just want to mention, though, for anybody who's interested and is not convinced by what I said about damage, a really good starting place is a review written by Alexander Fedensev and Alexei Muskalev. Last year in June, that was published in uh, Aging Research Reviews. It's, it's one of those articles that anybody interested in longevity uh, should take a look at um, because they do a good job. They're, they're probably more diplomatic than I just was in explaining uh, why ignoring accumulation of damage is, is going to lead to uh, disappointment. But, um, but essentially, you know, the, the message is there that, that damage actually causes a lot of what are now considered the, the um, hallmarks of aging are actually consequences uh, of accumulation of damage. And they make a really good case for that. Okay, thanks for that. Uh, and thanks for that recommendation. I'm going to definitely look that up uh, yeah. for those names before, for sure. Uh, since we're short on time, and, and uh, <laughs> it'd be good to get some people in the audience here. My next question, to sum up your point, if I can, uh, on page 186 of the book, you say quite uh, succinctly and clearly, that in your view, the molecular and cellular damage that accumulates with age as a normal byproduct of life-sustaining metabolism is simply too integrated and complex for drug-based strategies. Probably that would be the, the single summary message that, that sort of captures everything that you say in the chapters that are dealing with why the other the non-replacement-based approaches uh, aren't really going to work as effectively. Uh, right. My next question was going to be about something you said on, on again, I'm checking my notes here. There's so much stuff. On page 160 of your book, this is the physical copy of the book, uh, you say that for the brain, which cannot be replaced as a whole, special consideration needs to be given to replacing the extracellular matrix. To some extent, this problem is mitigated by the arrival of new replacement cells, since the young cells will create their own uh, new and undamaged ECM. However, residual old ECM would have to be completely eliminated at some point during the rejuvenation process to truly cleanse brain tissue of age-related damage. At this time, the best way this can be accomplished has not been determined. So at some point in the q and I'd like to invite Colin Ewald to, to follow up on that with you. But I do want to ask a very important question on my part. One thing that you, you touch on in the book, uh, if I could just uh, say to anyone that is going to read this book, especially people that are not as familiar with, uh, you know, the truly far-reaching imagination of what is possible with uh, technology, it may shock you. Some of the, the passages and, and uh, descriptions of the book may shock you. There are descriptions which uh, uh, some people would would describe as um, as uh, you, you know you use the Frankenstein example uh, for one in one at one point you even have a chapter of that title right so and you do say at one point in the book that you're not um, how did you put it uh, you said you are not an expert by no means you am I an expert in the social sciences you said. Uh, and yet, and yet, to say that human beings and society are relentlessly adaptable, and so there's no inherent reason to imagine a population that lives longer cannot form a prosperous society. The question I have to you is: How do you address the folks out there? And there's going to be a lot of people out there who are going to be uh, uncomfortable with, possibly scared by, and outright antagonistic to the kinds of research and 
proposals that that you make in the book like have because you you do touch on this in in the book but don't really address it very much aside from mentioning that it's gonna you know it's a concern so how would you elaborate a little bit let's say in a minute so we can bring some people up on on stage from the audience uh as to how you intend to uh, or, or how in your opinion the industry as a whole should address those people uh because th there are going to be people like this out there who will will say these things yeah i mean you know again there are other people who have like aubrey for example and others who have spoken very eloquently about um how you address uh, some of the concerns that people bring up in general about extending the human lifespan. Um, so I don't know if you're asking more specifically about the approaches that I'm suggesting, um, you know, about that involve uh, replacements. Um, but, you know, I, I would say this, this is already happening. Um, perhaps, perhaps I can be a little bit more clear also yeah. not be as clear as you. Uh, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say it here. Some of the stuff that you write about in the book will be described as transhumanism, and there are people out there who are strongly against any kind of uh, anything even approach even approaching transhumanism. And and like you know you go right to the limit of what uh, at least in some of the chapters of the book of what is possible. That's why I said it's it's uh, as thought provoking as imaginative as Eric Drexler's book, as he he talks about that kind of stuff as well. Now now uh, the thing here is you know not everybody agrees that uh, you know the body and mind and and brain are are uh, purely mechanistic, let's say, or, or largely mechanistic in the way that you describe so that they can be replaced, uh, in, you know, piecewise piece like you described in the book. Uh, there, there are spiritual people out there. There are people who are not uh, as much in favor of advanced technology as, as many of the folks who are advocating, uh, you know, uh, anti-aging strategies. How do you address those people? Because, uh, you know, what if, what if there are people out there and there are people out there uh, who, who just don't want this kind of stuff and they're happy with the way things are. Yeah, yeah, that, there's a lot actually in that question. The, the first point is uh, transhumanism. I actually don't see myself as a transhumanist. I mean, I don't have any issues with, uh, the, you know, the, the transhumanist movement, but, but the transhumanists are looking to fundamentally change uh, the human nature to something better. Whereas, you know, my whole focus is to maintain uh, who we are, you know, instead of degrading and aging and eventually meeting uh, an inevitable demise. So what I'm really trying to do is not transhumanism so much as uh, preservation of humans <laughs> as, as much as possible as they are. Um, so that, that, you know, so th that might be a little different. I don't know if that's uh, necessarily more comforting to some people, as you say, some are, will be fundamentally against this, um, no matter what. Uh, but, um, you know, but this has been the nature of, uh, of um, science and, te and technology and the development uh, throughout humanity, right? I mean, um, people were against the bike bicycles <laughs> because it was unnatural until of course automobiles came around and then they forgot all about bikes 
Um, so, you know, there's an adaptation period for all these things, you know, um, organ transplants. That was that was problematic at first, but they're pretty routine now from from donors. Uh, and and they're they're becoming more routine for uh, certain lab grown uh, organs. And, you know, it's just part, you know, it's, it's all part for me. It's part of the regenerative medicine aspect. All these are, are just doing good in terms of health and, and longevity. Um, you know, so I, I think, yes, some of the approaches I touch upon in the book are definitely going to be uh, viewed as a little more controversial. Uh, but, you know, those are all possibilities. You know, they're not the only approaches. Um, but certainly in terms of um, some of these body part replacements, even with prosthetics, right? I mean... I just saw, you know, last summer, somebody in, in Central Park here in New York running upstairs with a prosthetic leg and it movement looked totally natural. I mean, these things are getting really good. Um, and so, but, but they're, you know, they're mimicking a normal, a normal leg. And so right now these things are all being used to treat injury and disease, but, you know, when they become more commonplace, which is happening every day, um, I think people become are more exposed to them, become more accepting of them, and see that this is good. It makes us uh, allows us to live our lives more fully for uh, longer. So I, I agree. I know what you're saying, though. I mean, there's some people that are there's going to be pushback, and there always will. But um, you know, there that you know that's a big endeavor uh, something that we all need to be aware of and if we're interested in longevity we all need to be outspoken about all right thank you so much for that answer uh maybe it's something to come back to in another call or, or in a, sure an edition of your book or something um so since we're approaching uh the at least top of the hour here uh let's open this up uh invite some people from the audience i forgot to mention earlier uh, we are recording this, so if you come up on stage, you're consenting uh, that uh, your image and voice is going to be part of the recording. Um, so I invite, okay, here Colin's coming up uh, uh, to ask um, questions to Jean, and it just, uh, you know, we'll try to get everyone in order. And Jean, uh, if you can stay a little bit past uh, five, just, just let us know how much time you have, and, and we'll try to accommodate as many people as we can. So, uh, Colin, uh, thank you so much. What a surprise to have you here. Uh, please, uh, the floor is yours. Colin, you're... Uh... Hi, Colin. <laughs> Are you there? Yeah, can you hear me? Yes, yes, you were uh, muted okay. for a second. Uh, perfect. So, um, first of all, fantastic show. I always love come back to hear more. And I was really looking forward to the show with Sean today because... Um, I must say I'm a big fan and Sean was kind enough to send me his book. So I am super happy about this and I can just reiterate the book is fantastic. It's a very good read. It's thought provocative and it's really, it's just excellent. So Sean, I just want to ask you, of course, some question about the extra matrix. I mean, in the book, you already mentioned it. It's like a big part of the body. How you envision um, to replace like, you know, big external matrix parts, connective tissue. Um, that would be my first question. 
Yeah. So just before, can I just say uh, uh, to everyone listening, Colin is a world expert in uh, ECM research at the ETH. That's another thing. Maybe when you come up on stage, just give a very, just say your name and where you're from. Might give some background to uh, our, you know everyone else listening. Uh, sorry, with that, go ahead, Jean. Yeah, sure. No, I mean, uh, Colin, yeah, you're absolutely uh, right. The the ECM is uh, a major part of the body, right? Um, collagen, extracellular protein. I mean, it's a family of proteins, but it, it comprises 30% of the protein in the body. Um, so yeah, it, it can't be ignored. If you're thinking of aging, you, you have to think of the extracellular matrix. In fact, the aging extracellular matrix uh, has been shown to be the, the causative reason, or at least one of the causative reasons for stem cell exhaustion, uh, for, for inflammation. Um, uh, for cell senescence. So, um, yeah, I mean, it can't be ignored. So the way that, that you know, we propose replacements um, for most of the body is not so much an issue because you replace the cells and the extracellular matrix at the same time. For the brain, in the book, I was less, um, I was more open to approaches, but, you know, over the last... Uh, you know, I probably wrote that two years ago now. So over the last, and it was published last November, but my, you know, I think really um, there's a much clearer path to success in replacing brain tissue. And it, it also involves uh, similar to what happens with a slow growing benign glioma where you have uh, obliteration or silencing over time of one area. Um, I think if we do that, as well as provide the, the new substrate, uh, the transfer of function will occur seamlessly, as we know happens already. Um, and then once the tissue is dead, that has been silenced, I mean, uh, not biologically dead, it's still metabolically active, but uh, neuronally, electrophysiologically dead, uh, then it can be removed. Uh, and with that, you remove the extracellular matrix and with the new tissue, you provide a whole new extracellular matrix along with uh, new cells, you know, pristine new uh, tissue. Um, so I, I hope that answers the question. That's sort of what we're thinking. Yes, thank you. That really answered the question. Um, can I ask a second question? Just because to stay in this route. So if you, I mean, there are experiments done taking um, in, in rats, leg muscles from a young rat and um, transplant the muscle into an old rat and vice versa. You can take an old rat muscle and transplant that in a young rat and the old muscle functions like a young muscle. But vice versa, if you take a young muscle place in an old rat, the muscle functions like, like an old muscle. So Aren't you afraid that, you know, replacing some organs and some tissue is just going to be basically old, even though they don't have the accumulation of damage? Yeah, I mean, that's a very important question, right? And uh, one that, that comes up. And, and so I think the, the, the muscle is one example, um, but there are a lot of examples like this where, you know, you can take uh, old cells, put them in a, a young extracellular matrix and they behave like they're young again right so again why what you're working on the extracellular matrix is 
really important and shouldn't be ignored and vice versa, taking young cells and putting them in an old environment and they, they don't behave well. Uh, they behave like the, the old uh, cells in the old environment. So there's examples of that actually for multiple uh, tissues. A and so the approach we're taking though is, is that you're, we're replacing enough of, uh, of a tissue, a piece of tissue at once and, and all the cell types in that tissue. So all the support cells, the vasculature, everything is, is young surrounding our, our neurons, for example, for the brain. Uh, so it's still uh, something that we would have to keep an eye on, you know, the performance of, of the graphs. But so far, what we've seen in tests in animal models is that these, um, these, these new cells behave like uh, young cells. Um, and, and there's very limited evidence of this in humans because it hasn't been looked at, except one case in, uh, in Parkinson's disease, where they looked at postmortem tissue and showed that the cells that they transplanted were, uh, for the first, you know, at least decade, uh, devoid of the pathology that was seen, that, that, that the neighboring, um, you know, recipient cells were exhibiting. Eventually, they do succumb, uh, but those are purified neurons as well. Uh, neural precursors that were put in. So the way we're doing it is going to be even better than that. So we, we would hope that there's, you know, at least more than a 10 year, uh, um, you know, um, time when the tissue is not exhibiting any of the uh, influences of surrounding aging tissue. But at the same time, you know, we're doing progressive um, replacements to eventually get rid of all the old tissue. So, you know, there might be a, a timing, uh, a rate of replacement that will need to be determined. Um, but I think it's totally uh, overcomable. This, this, this problem of, of the old environment will, yes, eventually, uh, you know, win out. But if you're, you know, if you're outpacing it, I think you'll be okay. makes really sense to me. So thank you very much for your explanation. And yeah, I really you. look forward to your fascinating research coming out of Yeah, that. I hope we get to talk some more soon. Thanks so much for that, Colin. Uh, John, welcome. Uh, uh, maybe a, a quick uh, where you're from and, and, uh, and your question. Hi, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, my name is John Young. I'm an MD, PhD with a PhD in artificial intelligence. And I'm looking to transition into the longevity space. And I also really enjoyed your, your book, Sean. And I actually had a question uh, about an article you wrote in Trends in Neurosciences. Um, I thought this, this might be helpful. But at the very end of the article, you say, at this time, there's no evidence that aging can, in fact, be reversed through cell transplantation. And I was wondering, you've kind of touched on this uh, throughout this uh, clubhouse, but wondering if this still stands or uh, if you have any updates. Yeah, I mean, since, uh, you know, again, that, that came out sometime in 2018. So, you know, his article was based probably on work done uh, before that up to maybe 2017. So, I mean, the progress has been made in the last four years. And I've become uh, a lot more um, 
confident that um, these replacements will work. I mean, as I was uh, telling Colin and everyone else, um, you know, in the book, I was uh, more open to different approaches, not knowing what might work best. But I think uh, as we've examined the potential uh, caveats and benefits and looked over the literature about what's known about um, the certain aspects of brain aging and um, and what's possible in terms of transplants, I, I think um, it's much clearer to me that now that um, that we will be able to get this to work. I think, you know, I was being cautious in, in that uh, review paper as well, but yeah. So uh, some of your more recent papers are, would there, would there be, is there evidence um, or is there still no solid or I don't know, convincing evidence, I guess? Um, well, so there's a lot of groups that have been transplanting precursor cells in the adult brain under different pathological conditions. And, you know, over the last uh, four or five years, and, it, you know, it's reason for optimism. I mean, they, these cells do really well. They, they connect, they differentiate, they connect, they become electrophysiologically integrated into networks. Um, if you put precursors in the visual part of the neocortex, for example, uh, over the course of a, uh, a month or a couple of months, they will behave like normal um, visual cortex neurons in that they respond, you know, primary visual cortex in that they re respond the same way to um, um, the orientation of a visual presentation as well as if it's a moving um, visual cue. Uh, court, uh, respond the same way to a moving visual cue. Uh, transplants to the motor part of the neocortex. Uh, if you excite those neurons, they will elicit um, um, muscle contractions. Um, so, you know, the evidence is just building that, that this is definitely, uh, if not, you know, I, I think it's more than worth pursuing. I, I'm confident that it will work. Great, thanks. Yep. So, and it, thanks for your question. So, uh, Jean, how much more time do we have? It's it's a little bit past uh, five here. Um, I you know I, I can go on for for longer. I don't actually have anything scheduled for the rest of the day. So, <laughs> so Nathan, do you have any uh, anything now to uh, add? I, I I have plenty of questions, so I can continue. And again, anyone else, if you want to come up, uh, just raise your hand. Yeah, um, maybe I could ask a question. So, Jean, uh, why hasn't Bill Gates reached out to you? Because, <laughs> you know, Bill Gates is uh, a champion of Alzheimer's research, right? So I would think that the Alzheimer's community or maybe, you know, the Parkinson's um, disease community would be really interested in this kind of research and this, um, you know, approach to to uh, potentially reversing these uh, neurodegenerative diseases? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question, Nathan. <laughs> I don't know that Bill Gates knows that I exist, for one. Uh, but beyond that, no, there are a lot of, um, uh, you know, people that could make a, a huge difference in accelerating progress in this area of regenerative medicine. 
um, you know, at least uh, a dozen of them openly, you know, pursuing the idea of longevity, and then, you know, dozens more that are, are funding uh, regenerative medicine in big ways. Um, so, I mean, that's it, you know, that's one avenue of funding that um, I'm trying to pursue as well as, you know, these major philanthropists that can really make a difference. Again, because this is not a project that can be done. We really need teams uh, of scientists for, for the different cell types. Um, you know, we're using, uh, we, we need uh, to optimize our methods for, for layering and, and topographically arranging those cell types. So we need very good tissue engineers. Um, we need electrophysiologists. We need uh, systems neuroscientists. We need computational biologists. Um, you know, we need all these people to come together. And that will only happen with, you know, some major backing. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I mean, if, if you have uh, contact information for any of these people on your Rolodex, uh, I, I'd appreciate it. Uh, I am sort of working towards that through other people who do have contact with, the, with these uh, potential major donors. Um, so it's a work in progress. Hopefully we'll get there. Does that answer your question, Nathan? Oh, yeah, of course, of course. Yeah. Okay, thanks, thanks uh, I guess, Mihai, uh, welcome. And then I'm, I'm going to put a follow-up question to what Nathan said. Uh, Mihai, uh, maybe a quick word about uh, where you're, what your background is and, and what's your question. Hey, Jean, thank you so much for uh, doing this uh, session. It was quite interesting, and I must say I haven't read your book. Uh, I'm a software engineer. I don't really know that much about biology and such, but I'm very curious about the field. And uh, listening to this, it just popped through my head that, you know, maybe some people would be open to having their, you know, brain removed and placing that into an artificial environment where it could continue to survive somehow. And I'm curious what you think about that. Like, is that something that will make the problem more tractable or do you think that would be, you know, to science fiction? Um, yeah, no, I think that's... Uh... That's a viable approach. I mean, I think that might be what uh, Rob touched upon as, as something that would be rather controversial. And I get a lot of pushback on, but I, I do mention that in the book. Um, and there has been uh, advances made in that respect as well, right? We are our brains, um, pretty much. I mean, again, not everyone would necessarily agree, but uh, if I had one thing to preserve, it would be my brain. Um, and, and there are systems um, that have been developed that, that can keep biological tissue alive for long periods of time that could be optimized as replacements. Um, so they, they perform the function of blood filtration, like uh, a kidney would, of oxygenation, like the lungs do, as well as um, pulsatile delivery, like the heart does, um, you know, that... that uh, that that could be used, right? So uh, these systems, uh, there's at least one example from a group in Yale where they uh, they've developed. Uh, I think, to, to my knowledge, that's the most advanced system. Um, you know, it's not good enough uh, to keep uh, a brain alive indefinitely. I don't think yet, but it's certainly uh, possible. And then combine that with the uh, you know the the ever 
uh, improving brain um, machine interfaces, right? Where um, the, with, with uh, artificial intelligence and, and these, you know, newer, very uh, fine, minimally um, uh, invasive, um, minimally reactive, um, like carbon-based electrodes, like Neuralink is working on, for example. Um, these interfaces will can allow you to uh, move, uh, you know, artificial limbs and everything. So, uh, in in a relatively short amount of time, you know, the, the, these interfaces allow you to do that, and that's been shown in, you know, quadriplegics already uh, that this works. Uh, so, you know, yeah, you're absolutely right that that, that the uh, replacement of most of the body it can be done with non-biological um, parts um, and still allow us to be relatively uh, functional uh, or perhaps even more functional. But this, I guess that's a little more, uh, you know, uh, transhumanist. Um, so, so, Rob, maybe you're right on that point. I forgot I, I did discuss that in the book. Uh, but yeah, no, that's another possibility. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, uh, thanks for that question, Mihai. That's that's one of several things of that general nature that you discuss in the book, and uh, that's what I'm saying. Like it's, uh, you know, so, so that, that that definitely crosses over into the realm of transhumanism, and um, it's something which uh, you do mention as being of concern to to some people. But like, it would be perhaps a good idea to elaborate further that concern and, and how to respect the, the wishes of people that, that are not interested in, in this kind of stuff, because there are plenty of people out there that are not interested. And also the interesting examples, like you gave uh, an example of, uh, of a religious uh, doctor who nonetheless was pursuing some, some pretty uh, out there experiments um, in, in pursuit of uh, this kind of, this general direction of research uh, back in the seventies or so. I got to look up my notes on your book here. Yeah, um, that, uh, Robert White. Yeah, yeah, he's Robert the one yeah. who did the um, uh, the the uh, uh, monkey head transplants, right? And and he was developing this uh, for humans uh, because he thought it was immoral um, if we could save a human life uh, with a um, by by giving basically uh, a person or. Uh, that would die from whatever degenerative disease, a body that would allow them to continue living, that would be immoral not to do that. Um, and, and so he, he was developing this. And yeah, he was a, he was very a religious person. He was an advisor to the Pope at one time. Um, and so, you know, these approaches are not incompatible with uh, religious beliefs, certainly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's another uh, avenue that, um, you know, gets a lot of uh, press in terms of being controversial. Um, but again, it's, you know, it's to save someone's life. I think we can argue that it might be worthwhile. Definitely something very, very interesting to come back to. So if I can elaborate on, uh, on uh, maybe... Uh... <laughs> One of the questions I wanted to ask that sort of follows on to, uh, you know, Nathan was asking, like, why why aren't people like Bill Gates looking at this kind of stuff? And um, 
And also you mentioned earlier that uh, a lot of people may not be aware of the progress in regenerative medicine and how much has been done in recent decades. On page 173 of the physical uh, book, you, you, uh, or the printed copy, you say, in general, predictions of success in research have been notoriously inaccurate with the achievement of stated goals in some cases taking decades longer than expected due to unforeseen roadblocks and in other cases being realized much sooner than predicted due to unanticipated technological breakthroughs. I, I, I put down this quote as, at least in, in my book, the, the most significant comment in the whole book, right? As relates to sort of um, the, the trends that we are, we are part of and witnessing right in, in our in our rapidly changing uh, society so uh, I, I guess my question here would be because because you also say at one point uh, where, where was this um, in a different page you wrote when will we reach a stage when organs and tissues can be routinely replaced to cure aging in 10 20 or 30 years it's hard to predict <laughs> right so it, th that's a very candid statement I, I think that's uh, that's something that that needs to be said more often. It's hard to predict these things. And that's why I'm saying that that uh, other, the first quote uh, on, on how some things happen much later than, than hoped for and some things happen much sooner. So uh, related to this question, I, I guess would be, um, what are your, your thoughts on, on the technological and research trends in that sense, like of the speed of, the, of these things happening? And this, I guess, follows on to, uh, John's question, but, um, you know, also like what, what are some, uh, other developments of the kind of, uh, research that you're working on that may, that may influence potential major donors. If they, if they say, well, you know, this is amazing, but it could be used for this and we don't want that. <laughs> right. Or this is amazing. Have you thought about it being used for this? And we do want that, you know, and then that might be easier to uh, make the case if, if you say, like, look, we can actually use this same technology for this other area that, that you're interested in. Yeah, I think that that argument can actually be made pretty readily and, and is made um, all the time in, in regenerative medicine. Right. I mean, these uh, the progress that's being made, even though investigators are very well aware of implications in terms of um, rejuvenating or, or reversing aging. Um, they're, they're stated openly, their goals that they state openly is to um, basically cure a disease or, or repair a, a traumatic injury. Um, and so I think, you know, those arguments are made and they're readily accepted. Um, I think what will make a big difference in terms of, you know, the time it takes to get there, uh, again, which is hard to judge, but it, what's clear is that there are a lot of things that need to be worked out technically. And if we need to work them out sequentially, uh, it'll take a lot longer than if we can work them out in parallel. Um, and, and what would allow us to work them out in parallel as opposed to sequentially is increased funding get more people working on that so that's uh yeah but i think in terms of getting the funding um i i think i think it'll grow i mean i think this approach will 
will catch on more generally. Regenerative medicine has always been a major interest um, to those interested in health in general. Um, and as examples uh, of lab-grown organs continue, um, then I think, you know, the interest will just grow. Um, and if we can accelerate that, that'd be great. All right. So many things to follow up on here, but uh, we have Michael Weiss on stage. Uh, maybe quick uh, background on, on where you're from and, and your question. Thanks, Robert. Hey, John. Super interesting. Hi, um, yeah, I'm Michael. I run a large like AI industry conference in the U.S., and I would say I'm an avid supporter of longevity. Um, my question is, you know, what is like your kind of like philosophical motivation behind your work? Is it, you know, I'm John, I'm aging, I want to replace my whole body, or is it, you know, I this is just my greatest contribution? What's kind of your like, you know, personal mission statement? Um. Mission statement? Well, my, my mission statement is to, I guess, to be aging, focusing on the brain, and, and hopefully other people will take care of other parts of the body. But my motivation, I guess, is just, you know, life. I, you know, I think it beats the alternative, right? <laughs> uh, I enjoy life. Uh, I like, you know, I want to continue. I want to have the people uh, that are close to me continue and, and have everybody else have the opportunity to do that as well. Cool. I don't disagree. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. A quick question, a quick answer. <laughs> uh, but, but a very important one. Um, yeah. And I think, uh, I think you answered that quite, quite well. Quite, uh, you said this in the book too, at one point. Uh, you, your closing sentence, if we love life, we should be free to live it for as long as we can that's a nice way to close out a book like that so um all right we're 20 minutes past uh just uh yeah just let, let us know how, how we can keep keep doing this for i think uh our our record time was was over three hours for one particular <laughs> call so yeah. uh all right uh laura minkini welcome uh maybe a minute but a quick uh, background on, on and your question Hi, Rob. Nathan, thanks for having me on stage. I just came to say a hi to Jean because I really like him. So um, I'm a big advocate for longevity. And by longevity, I mean how to ex uh, match her health span to her lifespan. And the reason I got into longevity was because um, I think we need to change the current paradigm of aging. Um, it's not quite pleasant. A lot of people are spending too much time sick and the quality of life is really poor in the last days of our, um, the last years of our lives. Um, I just wanted to say to Jean that one of the biggest things, um, there, I mean, in a lot of studies, but the one thing that people are always afraid of, um, and in terms of aging, is losing their minds, meaning their brains. So what he's doing is so important. And I just have a question in terms of um, the work that he's doing. John, do you think that within a 10-year span, you will have advanced a lot of the work so that we can really um, regenerate the brain? <laughs> yeah, I really, 
I really hope so. And, and Laura, thanks for your question. And um, I'm a fan of yours and what you're doing as well. And I, I uh, even though I, I read your tweets, even though I don't uh, often respond. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, this sort of gets back to uh, the difficulty in predicting a, a timeline for success, even just for the uh, brain. Um, you know, my, my, my dad keeps asking me the same thing, you know, when, when can I benefit from this? Um, and, you know, I, I hope it's in time for, for him. Um, I don't know. Um, but it's not impossible. So, you know, we've set, again, with the proper, uh, you know, backing um, where we have our teams in place and we're progressing, we have an optimistic time to clinical trial for our first case study, which would be stroke, for example, or, you know, local uh, brain damage. Could also be trauma, but stroke is, you know, just the most common form of brain damage. And so recruitment certainly wouldn't be uh, a challenge. Um, and, and so our, our optimistic, you know, if we have all our, our um, operation running in parallel, all, all the aspects of the project in parallel uh, being developed. We can get to clinical trials, I think, uh, maybe in five years for stroke. Um, and then, you know, the next thing, uh, it would take at least five years, I think, between that and, and the next application, uh, just because the time it takes to initiate the trials uh, and also to get at least preliminary results before moving on to another trial. But the, not, the next trial would be much closer to something akin to uh, aging, like uh, frontotemporal dementia, for example. Uh, so it's a little less localized, but it's still not, you know, the whole brain. Uh, and so it can be addressed with these neocortical replacements. So it's not impossible in 10 years that we, we could be at that point where we're um, tackling that, which is much closer to aging you know, because it's, it's a form of dementia. Uh, and then after that, you know, it's just, uh, as, you know, if, we, if that is, um, shows success, then, then we move on to uh, senility, which essentially is, is uh, aging. Um, but again, that's with, you know, everything operating at an accelerated pace. Um, at the speed we're going now, uh, there wouldn't be, <laughs> a lot of us would not benefit from this. Uh, so we, that's why we need to accelerate this. But it's, it's not impossible uh, within, you know, five to 15 years to be uh, showing benefits in humans of these types of transplants. Transplants are already approved in clinical trials for a lot of different um, brain disorders, degenerative brain disorders. Uh, the idea is not repair, though. They're, they're just... Uh, putting in cells that provide good factors for existing uh, tissues. So what we're doing is a little different, a little more ambitious, but I think we can make a convincing case given that there's no alternative approaches uh, that are working. Thanks, Laura. Thank you. I do, one more question really quickly. How are you finding the subjects for your trials? Uh, well, we haven't started the trials. Yeah, we haven't, uh, we're, we're, you know, optimistically five years away from that. Uh, but 
we foresee that the uh, size of damage due to stroke will be uh, an important inclusion criteria because we, you know, we don't want to start with strokes that take out half your brain. We want to start with something a little smaller. Um, the age might not matter uh, so much. Um, we'll probably be open to different ages, but as long as uh, it's not like a, a 95 year old where the risk of succumbing to the uh, surgery itself uh, would be too high. Um, so, you know, there'll be some exclusion criteria possibly for very advanced age patients. Um, but yeah. I, I, I don't know if that's what you're asking, but yeah. No, I'm just curious if when uh, doing research, it makes sense to look at people that would have the propensity to have degenerative diseases because of their family history. Oh, I see. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. So when we get to more widespread damage, application to more widespread damage, yeah, that's definitely a possibility. Yeah. Uh, it, it actually makes scientific sense, right? Because... Um, I would think so. <laughs> Yeah, we know what the outcome would be without treatment. Um, and, and so there's a, a better basis for comparison, perhaps. Thank you, John. It was nice meeting you. You too. Great, uh, great question there. Um, Ilya Osipov, uh, welcome. Hey, so uh, I apologize if this is a stupid question. Uh, I'm I'm just a programmer, so I'm not a PhD in biology. But uh, your your approach focuses on uh, progressively replacing neurons in the brain, and uh, I find it promising. But uh, my question is, could we just add more neurons to may maybe like increase intelligence? Because I know there's like a 0.4 correlation with uh, brain volume and IQ, which is maybe like surrogate marker for intelligence. Uh, so, and also like thinking about, uh, like the difference between monkeys and humans, one variable that differs is the brain volume. So do you think we could just add more neurons? Yeah. You know, even in our approach, the first step might be to add, and it's not just neurons. So we were actually adding, you know, brain tissue. So the full complement of cell types. Um, but yes, I think you can initially add certain in part because uh, the brain atrophies as you age. Uh, and so space is created uh, within the skull to add a certain amount of, of uh, tissue or cells um, without having to remove anything. Uh, so yeah, I mean, the quick answer to your question is, yeah, I mean, you, could, you can certainly probably add cells alone or, or better yet, you know, uh, nice young tissue substrate uh, and and show benefits without uh, having to remove anything uh, over time. But you know, if eventually you know the the, the old surroundings, uh, as as we mentioned, uh, you know, in response to discussion with Colin, uh, would have to be replaced uh, as well because that environment will be eventually too toxic. Thanks. Thanks for the question. Uh, looks like we got uh, another here. How, how are we doing for time, uh, Jean, by the way? It looks like Colin left us. So. I'm good. Yeah. 
Okay. Uh, so uh, for anyone that just joined uh, in the last half an hour, an hour or so, we're, we're having a conversation here with uh, Jean Hebert, who is a uh, professor and researcher at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York and uh, wrote a book called Replacing Aging. Um, fascinating conversation, uh, incredible book, very thought-provoking. Uh, just a reminder for anyone that comes on stage that we're recording this. So if you come up, uh, you're consenting that we can use your uh, image and voice in the recording. So uh, with that, Bruno Dos Santos, uh, welcome to the stage. Hey, everyone. Thanks for having me. Uh, hello, Jean. I am hello. halfway through your book. Um, it's very interesting. And after this, I definitely want to read some more. Um, I work as a software engineer and one of the founders of a company in Georgia called Genfinity Precision Medicine. We work with biomarkers of aging and providing assays to consumers. And um, my question to you is, what is the current uh, landscape like uh, commercially for regenerative medicine? Um, are there any unmet needs that the private sector can help with uh, pushing, replacing aging along? Yeah, I, I mean, um, I think it's a growing landscape, especially in the longevity space. Um, so I've been talking to a lot of people in the private sector. Uh, and although it's still underrepresented, I think the interest is growing. Um, uh, you know, there's companies uh, working on lab-grown kidneys, um, for example. So there's a tremendous need for, for kidney replacements. Um and so there's definitely growing interest. Uh, a lot of it is is sort of um, not yet ready for uh, at least startups to, uh, you know, to or investors to be willing to to fund as startups um, because you know the, the uncertain about the turnaround time. Um, but you know there there are a lot of a lot more. Um, cell-based companies now, although a lot of them, there have been some in the past too that have failed, a fair amount of them. Um, but again, as, as time goes on, the technology is getting better and better um, and more and more of these are, are popping up. So, you know, um, I don't know if I'm answering your question, Bruno. Maybe you can uh, tell me if I am or not. Um, uh, yeah, I, d I definitely do agree with you that I believe there is interest in general in um, in longevity. Um, but is there any value to be gained today in regenerative medicine? And one example I can think of, um, I was reading a few years ago about uh, skin scaffolds for burn victims to try to replace the skin. And I think that's a, um, a pertinent example for uh, this field. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I think definitely um, there, you know, that's a good, skin is a good example. I mean, it's been one of one of the earlier, um, earliest tissues to be transplanted on a regular basis in the clinic uh, from lab-grown skin. Um, but there's still a lot of progress that needs to be made. I mean, the skin is, lacks uh, the different layers, like um, it just has sort of the superficial layer. Um, it also lacks uh, hair follicles and, um, uh, you know, uh, sweat glands. Uh, so there's progress to be made. And, and I think, you know, startups are a perfect 
place for that to happen. I, I you know, I'm not, I don't know, maybe it's already happening uh, for skin. You, you, you seem to be aware of this company. I, I'm not sure which one you're referring to, uh, but I think that's perfect. So they have something that can be used um, already uh, and it needs improvement, but, uh, you know, but it's already something that, that can be used. So they're ahead of the game in that sense. Um, yeah, I, again, I'm not sure I'm answering your question, but maybe, maybe you can clarify. I mean, it may just be outside of, of, of what I know um, in terms of the companies that are out there working. I know there are a lot, that, and, and we're, we're interested in some of them. Um, for example, a lot of the cells that we use in regenerative medicine come from these very immature embryonic cells. And so there's a company working on making sort of a universal donor cell that wouldn't elicit a immune response, for example. Um, yeah. And there's also uh, different companies working with growing organs, human organs in pigs, for example. Um, so, yeah, I, I think we're getting closer and closer, but... Um, there's definitely interest. Yeah. Thank you. Yep. Thanks. Oh, just quickly, the, those two companies, I, I guess the second one is eGenesis, right? The George Church startup. And, um, and the first one with the universal stem cell, is that, a, is that HX or, or is that someone else? Yeah. I don't know if they're the only two, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think Revivacore is also pursuing xenotransplantation, but yeah. um yeah, very cool. Thank you. Not necessarily good for the brain, though. <laughs> A little more complicated. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> I think there's another question. Yeah, Nathan, you want to take over for a minute? Um, just take a quick Yeah, uh, totally. Um, so, Ilya, um, do you have a question? Yes. How you doing? Uh, so I'm gonna ha I'm gonna have to apologize. I joined late, so I missed most of what you've mentioned. But I googled. Uh, uh, Gene's uh, profile. I'm on EinsteinMed.org, and I, I looked through it, so I think I'm a little bit more familiar now. Uh, I'm coming from a slightly different perspective as a parent of a child who has a neurodegenerative disease, and you know, we've done MRIs, and we can see that we do lose uh, some parts of the corpus callosum, you know, parts of the brain over time as the generation takes place. Uh, now we are working on treatments that gene therapy treatments that will in theory stop the, the you know that problem however we've lost number of neurons or part of the brain matter i guess as as it took us to develop this treatment uh so my question to you is uh i guess the first question is uh what do we know about the brain uh does the the loss of the brain uh, tissue directly equates to a lifelong problem or can brain compensate and learn to use different areas of, you know, parts of the brain for compensation? And and two is, uh, can we apply what you're doing in children with diseases that I'm thinking of? Yeah, I, I'm really glad you asked that because I think that's a very important point uh, that I should have emphasized and is definitely worth emphasizing is that the applications for this technology are not limited 
uh, to just stroke or longevity or age-related, um, uh, you know, brain uh, disorders. And so, yes, absolutely. Uh, this, if anything, would work even better in um, the younger the individual, right? Because there's already more plasticity. The environment is 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 better for incorporating uh, new tissue in general. Uh, so, absolutely. Um, in terms of how the brain works, I mean, you know, this is still something that's being figured out. Uh, but we do know that um, it, that that. The younger you are, the more plastic you are, right? So there, there's examples where uh, young individuals had lost half their brain due to some developmental disorder, and that wasn't even diagnosed until they did an MRI or something to see that you know half the brain is missing. Because otherwise, uh, they they um, they behave fairly normally, right? So, so again, this is due to uh, the ability of the brain to compensate, which is based largely on plasticity. You use what you have for what you need. Um, and again, this is uh, something that usually uh, younger individuals are better at uh, because their, their tissue is not yet mature. Uh, and so it will adopt the functions that are needed or useful uh, to, the, to the youngster. Um, much more easily than the adult where, you know, I, I gave the example of language early on, which you may have missed, but even in adults of advanced age, language over time can move to a completely new substrate. Uh, this, of course, can happen a lot quicker the younger you are. Uh, so I think, is it a lifelong problem or is it compensation? Um, I think depending on the age, it's not necessarily a lifelong problem um, or a deficit, uh, because if the younger you are, the more you've already compensated. Uh, but at any age, I think you can compensate and, and plasticity uh, can uh, allow you to, um, uh, to either uh, regain function if, if you suddenly lost it or, or to adopt function uh, from an area of the brain that is slowly failing. Uh, but thank you for your question. Yeah, and, and I hope um, these, either the, the uh, genetic um, gene therapy or, or the cell replacement therapy will benefit your, uh, your child before too long. Thank you. If I could ask another question, if nobody else has a question. Uh, so, uh, this is just so I understand. Uh, right now, it's pretty straightforward to take an iPSC of a person and then create. Supposedly, you can create neurons of different kinds. Right. Uh, but the, if you were to inject the, the the neurons that are created in the lab, and I think you mentioned that there are a few companies that are already working on something similar. Uh, I guess where where is the challenge? Why isn't that so simple to take neurons that you've created in the lab and literally inject them into a brain? Yeah. So, you know. In some places, it might be more simple. For example, in Parkinson's disease. In that case, there's a particular uh, type of neuron that's lost, the dopaminergic neurons. And, you know, the transplants have been uh, occurring uh, for that type of neuron for, you know, since the 80s. 
uh, and more recently from iPS-derived cells. So there's at least three groups that I know of that are using iPS-derived cells to generate this simple uh, neural precursor cell type that's then transplanted, not even in the right place of the brain, uh, but in the target area. And, um, you know, in the past has shown benefits and, and they're working on getting that to work. To, to be even more successful moving forward. Um, but for the part of the brain, the neocortex that we use for, you know, um, higher cognitive function, it's what I'm using now to try to formulate sentences that are comprehensible and what you're using now to try to make sense of what I'm saying. Um, you know, so it's a more conscious part of the brain. Uh, that's a little more complicated. There's a balance of cell types that are needed. Um, there's excitatory cells, there's inhibitory cells, and there's a lot of modulatory input that comes from other parts of the brain um, that needs to be reestablished. So it's basically just that the problem is a little more complex than putting in one particular cell type. Um, and unfortunately, most of uh, those doing research put in essentially, you know, just the main like excitatory uh, neuron cell type and that couldn't possibly function normally. So I think more uh, groups need to start thinking about combining the different types of uh, neurons that are required for normal uh, tissue, uh, um, normal function. Uh, as well as the, the topographical organization of those cells, also equally important. And, and you know, those that just hasn't been um, developed yet, technically. Um, but that's what we're working on, and, and I wish, you know, 100 other labs were working on it too, so that we can get there faster. Awesome. Thanks. Uh, I, if I could ask one, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I'll shut up, but I do have one more question. Let me know if I just ask too many questions. I, I don't think it's an issue. Uh, I have so many questions to ask myself. Uh, <laughs> other people do, but like, uh, really, the question is, John, uh, how much time time do we have? I think maybe we can go till six on the recorded part of this, and if you still have time, if anyone still has time, we can move to in uh, a new room that's more freestyle and will not be recorded. Is that yeah, I can go to six, uh, but I have to stop at six fifteen. So, yeah. Okay, uh, let's let's do that then. Um, so yeah, go ahead, Ilya. So last last question uh, again. Uh, this this is a fascinating topic for me uh, as I learn more, and I've come across a research bunch of researchers, and I'm sure you know uh, of the research uh, where you, I, I guess, play with specific genes and that. Uh, that control the neuron growth factor, and uh, and depending on what you do with these genes, you turn them on, you turn them off. Uh, you could, in theory, uh, let your this is an assumption, I guess, uh, let your body create more neurons. I, I'm wondering if you know what, what you think of that. If it's indeed how it works, or maybe I just misinterpreted it. No, that's also a very good question because um, I think a lot of people who aren't necessarily experts in the brain assume that and they've heard that oh we have stem cells even in the adult brain uh, that we could control these stem cells to regenerate um, um, you know dysfunctional or or lost uh, brain tissue uh, 
But the first thing that's important to keep in mind is these stem cells are very restricted in their location. There's a very small part of the brain uh, that is thought to house these stem cells. And, and they certainly do in most mammals. In humans, it's still a little controversial, I guess. I think the preponderance of the evidence is those stem cells do exist, even in the adult human brain. Um, but it's in a very restricted location. Um, and these cells are, are um, you know, when they give rise to new neurons, uh, they don't migrate very far at all. It's just, you know, microns away from the place they were born. And they give rise to, again, a very specific neuron type. So, you know, in a brain as big as the human brain, to figure out how to coax these stem cells to move to new parts of the brain and become different types of neurons uh, is really beyond um, what we can do. I, I think the approach of just putting the correct neural precursor cell in that part of the brain is a much more feasible approach than trying to reprogram uh, cells that are there that might have the capacity uh, to do that. So, you know, you're right. You know, we studied, we use genetics to study brain development and to study what controls the behavior of, of these stem cells, even in the adult brain. Um, and that was very interesting, uh, and we learned a lot. But in terms of repair, um, you know, we, we've, put, we've put all those projects aside uh, because I don't think they're going to be uh, directly useful, or certainly not as feasible as just, you know, growing our own... Um, cells in culture that are exactly the right type already that we want and putting them uh, where they need to be in the brain. Um, you know, both approaches would involve some level of surgery because these genetic manipulations, you know, you have to put something in like a viral delivery or something. Uh, so I don't know that one is even, you know, less or more or less invasive than the other. Uh, I mean, certainly the tissue replacements that we're talking about for rejuvenation are, are more uh, invasive. Uh, but in terms of just delivering cells for therapeutic purposes, uh, I think it's much easier just to do it with, with uh, a cell-based approach as opposed to a genetic-based approach. Thank I you. hope that answers your question. Uh, I have one more question, if that's okay. It's okay with me. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, cool, cool. Uh, so, obviously, you just uh, highlighted, I think, with respect to Ilya's first question, that there's a lot of devil in the details in the sense that we can't just insert the neuron, like just inject the neurons and expect everything to work. There's a bunch of like uh, various ratios and interactions between the supporting inhibitory neuron, inhibitor, inhibitory neurons, and like various types of neurons in different right. places in the brain. Right. Um, so my question is, do you think that there will be varying degrees of different types of uh, protocols or procedures between different people? Because each individual person will probably have like differing ratios with respect to how the neurons are organized, how quickly they um, how quickly the neuroplasticity happens and all that. Like, do you think there will be a lot of difference between individuals and that might potentially be like a big stumbling block? Or do you think like the first 
when you develop the protocol, do you think it'll just be quickly generalize, generalizable to most people? I, I think more the latter. I mean, if you look at uh, the brains, even across species, the composition of the cells, their arrangement, their location, their ratios, I mean, the ratios change a little more between species, uh, but within species, they're, they're relatively tight. Um, so that's not so much an issue. I think where the protocols will vary a lot more is uh, for their application. So if we're just talking about brain repair, uh, the protocols might be very different for uh, different types of damage and, of course, different parts of the brain. Um, in terms of whole brain rejuvenation, I think those can be a little more standardized because this is not, we're not responding to acute damage. This is, you know, we can establish protocols that we can follow over time uh, repeatedly for, for different individuals. Um, so, yeah, I think the variability will come from the application more so than uh, inter-individual variability. Thanks. That's, uh, that's heartening to hear. Actually, yeah. if I could follow that up with a bit of a hardball here. <laughs> uh, Ilya, number one here, Ilya Osipov, uh, just asked uh, you know, about these technical details that are nitty-gritties that, that can um, maybe complicate matters. In, in your book, you mentioned at one point that... Um, the actual, uh, you know, like mechanistic basis of memory in the brain is still being figured out. Right. But there's evidence that, uh, you know, memories are, are contained in or, or essentially uh, encoded in, in like networks of thousands of neurons, et cetera. And if they're replaced in a gradual basis, in a gradual way, they can be preserved, uh, especially if the person is being, and you said this in the book, if the person is being reminded of the memory as this is happening or, or, or around the time, you know, after it's happening. So is there a risk that, that maybe um, that's not going to work as effectively and it will lead to, uh, you know, physical longevity, but the person will lose their memories or become a different person as the replacement occurs? Yeah. I mean, uh, that's definitely a consideration, right? But that's true regardless. Uh, if we don't touch the brain, you're going to forget things already, right? If you don't use them. Um, and so in that sense, it's not that different, uh, whether we're doing a, manip a manipulation or not. And eventually you're going to lose more and more of your memories with age. Right. Um, so, you know, the, but it, it's a, it is an important point because the pace at which, which I mentioned earlier that you, you start to do, uh, silencing of, a brain area at the same time as you're providing a new substrate to allow plasticity to to do its thing and, and the function to seamlessly move uh, from the old part of the brain or tissue to to the newer tissue. Um, the rate at which you do that will be very important, right? You can't go too fast because we know it takes, uh, you know, at least uh, three years for, for a function to move. Um, but these, you know, these details will need to be worked out um, for how fast you want to do that. Um, you know, too fast, and you know, I think I might have mentioned this in the book as well. You 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 become more like an infant, where you can learn things really easily, but you know, you you may forget uh, some of the things that are important to you. Um, so, and too slow, then you're not going to uh, outpace 
uh, aging itself. So, you know, that, that rate uh, needs to be determined. Um, and, it, you know, it might, there might be um, differences uh, in the rate of replacement that individuals are comfortable with. Um, and there's also, you know, uh, different parts of, even, again, if we're just focusing on the neocortex, there are, there's, you know, primary neocortices that are, are very specialized in their function. And then there are associative parts of the neocortex, which, you know, might be a little uh, more important to us that we might want to replace more slowly and very carefully. Uh, these are the parts that, uh, you know, we use like the frontal um, cortex, the, the, the frontal lobe, temporal lobe, right? These are, these are where we have our, our deeper, more complicated uh, <laughs> thoughts where, where we integrate uh, all our input, our perspective, we, we plan things. Um, so the rate might vary uh, for the different parts of the neocortex as well. Um, uh, but, you know, as, again, as we know from examples in humans of advanced age, you can lose uh, a substrate underlying language uh, without losing language, right? Because if you do it slow enough, it'll move to uh, a different substrate. So again, you know, language is a big one. Um, and if, you know, so I think it, it's something we can do. Um, you know, and about memories, I mean, <clears throat> it's one, you know, suppose you can do this and, and um, just general memories. I mean, if you if you do this kind of replacement, but then uh, you lose all the memory of the first, uh, let's say you do this when you're 60, right? And then the replacement occurs and, and you just can't remember anything from the first 50 years of your life. Um, so that leads to a, a strange kind of, uh, uh, you know, oh. life extension where... where that would mean that the protocol was uh, not working, right? Because that's not how it should work. Um, you know, the, the memories are not um, lost if they're moved to a new uh, substrate, you know, a new, a new circuit, right? Just like the example with language, you never forgot how to speak, right? You never forgot the meaning of the words. Right. This is true, but but language and general memory are are they really equivalent? No, not necessarily. There are non-language based memories, but the principle of plasticity is the same. If it can work for language, it can work for other functions as well, other memories. Because language is something that you use constantly, whereas memories in general are something that you don't quite as constantly exercise. Right. Right. So no, I mean, it's true that if you don't use it, you will lose it one way or another, whether you do these manipulations or not, you will forget things that you're not reminded of. Um, you're forgetting things now, I'm forgetting things now uh, because we're not using them, right? So that, that there's a risk of accelerating that, um, but um, again, that can be mitigated by you know, uh, focusing on the things that, that matter to you and, and remembering them and using them. So write things down and take pictures and remind yourself of everything <laughs> that you want to remember. Uh, okay, so we're almost at the two-hour mark. 
um, just living life and doing the things that you like to do normally will will allow that to happen more naturally. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so you said you can go for another 15 minutes almost. So instead of moving to another room, maybe we'll just keep it running till till uh, 615 Eastern here. Um, but we can just uh, open up to some more open ended questions as we would do in, in the open end chat. So uh, maybe I'll start here. Um, John, your, your book, like I said, is uh, uh, the best thing I've read on, on this kind of general theme since Eric Drexler's <laughs> Engines of Creation, which uh, is, is almost like science fiction. So uh, my question to you would be, what books, films, or, or the like um, had, had the most uh, influence on you or, or, you found, or you find most interesting and thought-provoking in that way in the science fiction genre? Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's been a long time since I've read a bit, a book for fun, a long, long time. Um, yeah, I, and I don't think they were relevant to my, you know, what I, what I work on, you know, I just do you, do you watch, uh, are you a fan of Futurama? No, I don't know what that is. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, maybe I'll send you a, a few clips from Futurama where they have, uh, effectively a brain in a jar okay um, yeah, yeah. so you know it's a it's a it's comedy but they they uh foresee a future when a come you know come comedic sense where these things might be possible uh, sure. but, but i was asking more you know conventional type of books but if you know fair, fair answer if you don't have anything particular in mind but um yeah. right um i mean in terms of what uh ha helped shape a bit my trajectory in terms of science was another science book uh, written by Caleb Finch. Um, it's called, uh, I think it's Longevity, Senescence, and the Genome or something like that. Yeah, uh, you reference it a few times in, in your book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that that's also a, a good reference in terms of getting a really broad perspective uh, on the, uh, the question of aging. I mean, uh, by senescence, you know, the term in that case is used uh, to mean aging and not what it's now come to mean is the non-proliferative state uh, of cells. So yeah, it's a very broad perspective. Um, I remember reading that book and, and uh, you know, there, it was at the time, it's super thought provoking for me. Um, and, and help guide my thinking, uh, ultimately in terms of uh, where I am now, that, that replacements are the way to go. So longevity, senescence, and the genome for anyone listening. Yeah. And I'll include myself in, in, in that uh, amongst the listeners here. Actually, that, that brings me yeah, to another but I'll, I'll, Since we have new listeners, I, I'll reiterate that, that paper uh, from about a year ago from uh, Alexander Fedintsev and Alexei Moskalev. Uh, I think that's a must read as well. <laughs> it's much shorter as well than a book, but yeah. Uh, and, and that's an aging research reviews. That's the name of the journal. So we're two hours in here. Uh, we've got 15 more minutes with uh, Jean Hebert, a professor and researcher at the um, Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York, working on uh, replacement based therapies for uh, largely for the brain, but talks about uh, the whole body as well. Um, fascinating conversation we've had here. This is being recorded, so we're going to put that up on YouTube shortly. 
Um, Nathan, I guess maybe you'll close out in, in a few minutes, but uh, Jean, before, and again, if, if anyone else has questions, you know, just chime, uh, speak up or, or uh, raise your hand. Jean, who would you like to see, <laughs> who would you hope that we can potentially get as, as a guest uh, on, on a future episode? Uh, since you brought up uh, Caleb Finch and how influential he, he was, do you think he might be an interesting person to ask about these things or uh, who would you have in mind? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think he might be an interesting person. Um, let's see. Uh, who else? <laughs> You've already had uh, Aubrey. Um, I mean, I have to get back on you on that. <laughs> Okay, no, no pressure. Just, yeah. just putting it out yeah. there. Uh, we, we like to ask, uh, you know, the guests as well. Uh, yeah. The point of this, uh, these conversations is to try to, you know, uh, exchange ideas. And I mean, one of the points is to try to exchange ideas uh, amongst people in the in the scene. And uh, it's interesting to hear who the, you know, you know who who you would want to. We've gotten some interesting responses too. Like Aubrey's uh, immediate answer was. Um, President Biden, <laughs> and uh, we we had a, a guest previously that, that mentioned uh, Bill Gates also. So yeah, yeah, excellent. Yeah, so yeah, take take your time and, and get back to us when, when you can. Any 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 potential uh, large uh, philanthropist would be good to get their perspective. Um, and to that, in terms of a scientist, I might add uh, somebody who's you know actively working in in an area of regenerative medicine. You know, the biggest name might be Anthony Atala at Wake Forest. Um, you know, I think he was the keynote speaker at, at one of Aubrey's um, conferences. And um, it'd be great to hear where things are at um, in terms of his progress, because they're working on many, many different uh, lab-grown organs. But, you know, that might be a little self-serving given my interest. But again, I think it should be of general interest to your audience as well. Uh, yeah, absolutely. We'll, we'll see what we can do there. So, uh, folks on the panel here, uh, if, if you have anything else you'd like to ask for, for the next couple minutes, uh, now's a good chance. And then I think uh, we'll, we'll try to close this out. John yeah, looks so like actually, you have a question. Yeah, I have uh, uh, two more questions, but uh, one should be quite quick. Um, so most recently, my background is in artificial intelligence, and I was just wondering if you had any plans to use machine learning, deep learning, or or AI in any of this uh, brain replacement research. Yeah, I mean, I I'm really excited about incorporating AI uh, in certain steps, right? I mean, it's being used more and more just in terms of assessing large uh, data pools, which we will also be using in uh, measuring how well our graphs are working. Uh, but beyond that, even in the, um, we're gonna need pretty smart machines, I think, in terms of executing uh, some of these graphs uh, in the human brain, which is a little um, uh, more, uh, topographically challenging than the very flat uh, rodent brain, for example. Um, so, you know, we'll need machines that can recognize uh, layers within tissues, 
uh, and then um, you know deposit uh, cell layers that match surrounding layers. For example, I mean this can be done by hand, but uh, you know I'm hoping that uh, advances in AI will facilitate that. And then you know a- as we've touched upon, there's the brain machine interfaces, which are are getting better and better. Um, you know, that's, those are, those are very active fields. Uh, and so I expect those will be very good and will also provide, uh, potentially, uh, useful applications to the, uh, in terms of, um, you know, complementing, uh, the the grafting, uh, approaches. Yeah. You had another great, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there is a lot of uh, potential and opportunity, and it's good to hear that. Um, yeah. I guess at least people in the domain are, are thinking in that direction, how to incorporate AI into their their workflow somehow. But well, that, second question that, that that'll be your job because <laughs> I, I wouldn't know the first thing about how to develop these. Uh, but I, you know, I have some ideas of how they can be used. Yeah, you know, that's so, definitely. Uh, well, I hope I hope people like you develop them uh, with yeah. us in mind. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Definitely something I'm thinking about. And I think hopefully other people are too. But uh, my second question goes back to something that you and Robert were talking about, um, going back to this idea of gradually silencing parts of the brain. And I think that's uh, you know very interesting in trying to recreate what happens with a glioma. In some ways, a very important aspect of this uh, brain replacement therapy. And I don't know if you have specific strategies for doing this um, or you know, ideas in this regard of how you would actually go about doing the silencing, because it, it seems like quite a, a difficult task in my mind. Yeah, no, that's a very good question. Uh, there are different ways to silence, um, you know, uh, uh, CNS tissue or brain tissue. There, there are physical ways, you know, just with uh, temperature, cold temperature. There, um, there are pharmacological ways where you can silence neurons. Uh, but those are hard to control, you know, in terms of uh, space. I think a much better approach is to use uh, techniques that are somewhat more recently developed, um, where uh, if you deliver uh, channels to um, neurons in a particular area, uh, that then using um, penetrating uh, red uh, light, you can silence. Uh, the neurons that now express this channel. And you can do that, that part completely, uh, well, much less invasively. So, you, you know, you still have to remove maybe uh, a bit of the uh, overlaying um, tissue, but, but without touching the brain itself. Uh, and that light, you know, you can adjust that light in terms of the area over time at any rate you want, right? And it's a, sort of a, a laser light. So you can very uh you know um precisely engineer the silencing of a brain tissue that way um and you know i i foresee something like that being the best approach you know the technology by the time we get to that stage where we're applying this to reverse brain aging technology may be way better there may be better options but right now that looks like the uh, best uh technological approach uh, but it's certainly you know, again, uh, already seems like like that should work, right? So, um, yeah. Thanks. That's a very good question. 
All right, I guess we have time maybe for one more question. Ilya, go ahead. Okay, um, so, Jean, uh, s- supposing we, like, use your strategy to replace, let's say, 20% of the, ner- like, of old neurons in a brain. So we have 20% of the neurons are young, and then the rest of the 80% are, like, still old. So my question is, would the molecular damage that is in the 80% old brain, would that damage dilute such that eventually the damage is uniformly distributed among the brain? Or would that damage just kind of remain in the old part of the brain and not really move to the new part? Because if it's true that the damage would dilute, then that would suggest that you don't actually have to replace the entirety of the brain. You would just have to replace enough of the brain such that uh, the damage would dilute to a point where the overall amount of damage is below the pathogenic threshold. So in essence, the question is, do we, do we have to replace the entire brain or do we just have to replace enough of it so it so that it dilutes? Yeah, no, the damage wouldn't dilute. Uh, you know, a lot of this, a lot of this damage is in extracellular matrix. Um, and, you know, it's the, the, the outcome is, is a stiffening of all the tissues in your body, but in a, you know, including the brain. So, so the, the brain essentially, you even get calcification uh, in the old brain to some extent. So it just, you know, it's less uh, fluid. Uh, you, there's much less opportunity uh, for, for dilution. Things are, are sort of becoming uh, frozen in place with these cross links uh, and damage over time. So, so it, the, the damage does not move. Uh, it, and that's for extracellular. Intracellular as well um, uh, typically does not move. There are exceptions to that, like prion disease, uh, where, you know, uh, damage can move from one part of the brain to another, but in that case, it doesn't dilute, it just spreads, uh, which is not good. Um, but in general, no, uh, there, you, you wouldn't get dilution. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Thanks for that. Uh, great question. Um, Nathan, you, I guess, uh, we can close it out here. Nathan, you still there? Yeah, yeah, of course. So uh, thanks again, John. This was uh, a fascinating conversation and uh, uh, obviously a great honor to have you here. And um, so maybe just a a few closing remarks. Um, So number one, next week, uh, our guest will be Kristen Fortney. She is the CEO and uh, co-founder of BioAge Labs. So um, that's a uh, machine learning an AI drug discovery company that's um, targeting aging. Uh, And then uh, number two, so just to reiterate, um, John, uh, his project, he mentioned that he might be hiring some people to uh, for this uh, brain uh, aging reversal project. Um, But also more importantly, if anybody in the audience um, is interested in helping in terms of funding, if you know someone, who is maybe a philanthropist or you know some sort of source of funding, um, that would be great. You can reach out to him. Um, just uh, find his email at uh, the Albert Einstein College of Medicine uh, website. And um, I guess the third thing, uh, go buy his book. It's uh, an incredible read, Replacing Aging. Um, it's not too long either. And it's just got some of the most interesting ideas 
and uh, uh, just like the the most, I would say, the most fundamentally sound approach to completely addressing aging versus uh, maybe some of the other things that we're doing uh, in the longevity industry, which I think are still very cool in terms of slowing aging. But um, yeah, definitely one of the, the most interesting ideas out there. So um, with that, uh, Great. Robert, is there I... any, <laughs> anything else you want to add, Robert? No, uh, we didn't get to do the usual lightning round questions. So we still got like two minutes. If you want to pop them off, then we can <laughs> we can uh, close the recording. Okay, sure. So um, just last sort of quick questions, lightning round. So John, uh, number one, how long do you want to live? <laughs> yeah, I remember that question from uh, your previous, that you posed to your previous guests as well. Um, I don't know. I, you know, I, I don't foresee um, life becoming boring. I think there's always ways that uh, it becomes interesting, uh, especially, you know, we can't imagine what the future has in store. So, uh, you know, I would love to see as much of it as possible. Awesome. And uh, number two, cryonics. What do you think? Yay or nay? Um, you know, it, it's, uh, I guess it's better than decomposition um, for sure. But um, I, I just wish that they were doing um, faster development in terms of not so much the um, vitrification, but the reanimation part, right? Um, I know I know groups are working on this for organ transplantation to preserve organs for longer so they can get to the patients that need it. Um, so they're working on this, but, but you know, again, not enough investment in that area as well. Um, uh, so, I think right now, I don't know if it works or not. Uh, well, it, clearly there is no way to reanimate uh, tissue it, with the current protocols of vitrification. I guess people are hoping that, you know, we'll figure that out later. Um, but yeah, anyway, that's that. those are my thoughts on cryonics. <laughs> okay, great. And then last question, this is kind of uh, an out there question, but... Um... The Fermi paradox. Why do you think we haven't encountered alien species? <laughs> um, I think it's mainly technological. We we don't have uh, the tools to see uh, enough. I mean, and the, and the limitations of space. Basically, um, uh, it's it's. Uh, inhibits us from from seeing anything but distant past this you know what we the light that hits us now from places far far away are, are from uh their their distant past um that doesn't help in our inability to travel uh very far beyond uh planet earth is also a, a tremendous limitation um but yeah, I mean, you know, like Carl Sagan says, billions and billions of stars. It's hard to imagine that we're the only life form out there. So I, I think at, at some point, you know, that would be a great reason to continue living as well, is to start encountering uh, um, life forms uh, on other planets.
maybe the life forms figured out how to live uh, forever and said, eh, we've had enough. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's something that, you know, kind of Douglas Adams-esque. And on that note, I have to uh, read that book. But uh, thank you so much, uh, Jean, for your time. Uh, amazing yeah. book, amazing conversation. I think uh, on my part, this is one of the most interesting ones that we've had to, so far. Really hope we can have you back, perhaps with some other experts to continue the uh, conversation, maybe debate some of the ideas of the directions that uh, the field is taking. Uh, Nathan, thanks for, for inviting uh, Jean over here. Um, and thanks everybody for, for being patient with us and uh, sticking around. We're gonna have the recording up on, on YouTube. Uh, be sure to uh, follow us on, on the app, Twitter, follow Nathan's uh, newsletter for future updates and information on the scene. Yeah. And uh, with that, uh, John, I guess we'll, uh, we'll close out the room. Uh, yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you very much, Nathan and Rob and, and all the participants. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to share some of our ideas. And yeah, I look forward to another, a debate would be great with, you know, other perspectives on uh, longevity and how to achieve it. Uh, that'd be great. All right, we'll, we'll try to arrange it. <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot. Okay, okay. thank you. Thanks, gonna uh, close, close up. I think as soon as John leaves, we, the room might close. So, cause he's, he opened it. Okay. Uh, looks like it's still around. All right, let's, let's close that.